welcome everyone to this afternoon's uh, public seminar organized by LSE Ideas, the Kuwait program, and LSE Middle East. Uh, we've got a mixed bunch of people here, and of course, you know, Rafael Espinosa, who I'll say a few more words in a minute, uh, has a nice mixture of policy work experience in the Gulf, but he's also a technical economist, and since we're holding this, in 32 Lincolns and Fields, which is where the economics department lives. I thought I'd just say a few words about how, how we're going to go with this seminar. This seminar is officially a public event. And so in that sense, for those of you who are here, because it's an economics talk, um, you will notice that it's different from a typical technical economic seminar that we hold in the economics department. Um, in public events, the audience is much more polite. Uh, in technical economic seminars, the speaker hardly ever gets a word out before he or she is interrupted by questions. I would like to keep to the level of civility that says we are, this is a public event organized by LSE Ideas Quake Program and LSE Middle East. So what we'd like to do is to invite the speaker, Rafael Espinosa, to give us a presentation on the topic of his book, Macroeconomics of the Gulf. He will speak for 45, 50 minutes, and then in the usual public events way, we will then have a question and answer session after that. Rafael Espinosa is an old friend here in the UK. He did his PhD at Oxford. He's been working for the last several years at the IMF. Um, from, from which he has engaged in a whole range of interesting academic and policy research. He works on asset pricing, capital flows, capital controls, but he's also had a direct hand in the unfolding of the world's financial systems after the 2008 global financial crisis. He has played critical roles in managing IMF interaction with different distressed economies here in Europe. At the same time, as you will see from his experience and his talk this afternoon, he has been greatly engaged with the macroeconomic development in the Gulf region. So he's here to speak about his new book, The Macroeconomics of the Gulf. If I could just then invite you to join me in welcoming Raphael to give us his talk. Thank you very much, Professor Kwa, for uh, the kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here to be able to uh, present to uh, this audience uh, some of my work that he's been doing uh, together with two colleagues uh, at the IMF, uh, Gada Fayed and, uh, and Prasad Antakrishnan. Um, so this is the work that he's been doing uh, at the fund for the last uh, three, four years. Uh, however, it's important for me to indicate from the beginning that these are our views as researchers and not the official views of, of the IMF, of its board, or, or IMF policy. Policy. Um, so we've put together this research work that uh, was initially uh, uh, done because there were interests in the region on specific kind of topics, and then we realized, okay, this is something that uh, is enough material uh, for telling a story about the region in the last uh, 20 years. And uh, uh, so that's basically why we put this together as a book, uh, and uh, uh, I'm going to present kind of the core chapters of that uh, today. Um, 
So you will know the region, of course. Uh, so this is a little map of uh, the Gulf states. I'm going to be talking exclusively today about uh, the countries, the six countries that form the uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which is uh, uh, which are Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Oman, the UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait. Uh, I, you know, I show you the map here, uh, and the numbers nearby are the level of income per capita, uh, are the rankings of the countries in terms of income per capita, PPP-adjusted terms. Um, so I think what is striking when you compare it to the rest of the region is really that it's, it's a peninsula of wealth in you know, a region of poverty. Uh, so you have these six countries here that three of them, uh, Qatar, Kuwait, and, uh, and the UAE, are among the ten highest income uh, per capita countries in the world. Uh, the next three countries, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Bahrain, are more populous countries or countries with less oil revenues uh, recently um, are around the 40, you know, ranked around the, the rank 40 in the world in terms of income per capita. Uh, nevertheless, you know, this is uh, dramatically, uh, you know, uh, superior performance uh, to the ones, uh, to the countries around the region, uh, you know, ranked 130, 110. So, of course, we know why, right? Uh, we know that uh, oil has been playing a, a major uh, part in this success. Um, and here there is a bit of a puzzle when we look at this literature on oil-rich countries, um, because this literature has been influenced a lot by this chart, uh, which I'm showing to you, which is uh, taken from Saxon Warner. So we normally think that, okay, oil-rich countries uh, benefit massively uh, from uh, the, uh, the oil revenues. Uh, but there is an academic literature discussing uh, the reverse uh, the, you know, uh, correlation, which is that oil-rich countries have done less uh, well uh, than uh, all poor countries. So it's a simple uh, scatter plot I'm showing here, again taken from uh, Saxon Warner's paper in 2001 on what they call the natural resource curse. Uh, on the horizontal axis, you have the share of exports of natural resources. On the vertical axis, you have the uh, growth performance of the countries per capita between 1970 and 1990. Okay, so 20 years of data uh, between 1970 and 1990. And the Gulf states that, you know, that we are discussing today, uh, they look like extreme case of the resource curse. You have Bahrain, Saudi Arabia not doing very well in terms of growth per capita and fairly high resource intensity. And you have the UAE and Kuwait doing pretty badly in terms of uh, growth per capita. Okay, so we'll come back to that um, in, uh, in in this uh, in this discussion today, uh, and the the plan of the of the talk will be centered around the first two parts of the book. First is a discussion of long run growth. Okay, what are the determinants of long run growth in uh, in the region? Uh, did the region suffer from Dutch disease? So, you know, if you've been following, uh, you know, the literature on resource curse, there are several potential explanations for resource curse. One of them is a so-called Dutch disease, the fact that countries with high uh, uh, windfalls of uh, revenues, uh, external revenues, tend to have an uh, appreciated real exchange rate, and that's harmful to uh, uh, investment in manufacturing, in, uh, in the sector that are more likely to produce long-term growth. So is this, is this an issue in the region? Um, a topic also linked to the resource curse is the idea that these uh, natural resources are accurate to the government and government spending can be inefficient and that could be one of the reasons why uh, the growth performance has not, not been uh, uh, sufficient. Um, 
And the second part of, uh, of the book uh, it deals with macro-stabilization uh, issues, which is quite uh, common of uh, the kind of work that we do uh, at the IMF, and that's really specifically assessing uh, the effectiveness and the stance of fiscal and monetary policies. There is a third part that I won't, uh, of the book that I won't talk about today, which is about the financial sector. Given that uh, a lot of data uh, was coming during the crisis, and we were working uh, on this during the crisis, it was useful for us to also discuss you know, the banking sector and understand a bit you know, why uh, there were some trouble in Dubai, etc. Okay. Um, so let's look a bit at, at the determinants of long-run growth in the region. Uh, first of all, this is a region that has had a massive influx of foreign workers, and as well in some countries like Saudi Arabia, quite a large increase in uh, uh, local population uh, entering the labor force, uh, you know, finishing school and entering the labor force. And so we get something like a tripling of the number of uh, workers in the region in the last 20 years. So when we think about uh, long-term growth, obviously you know, the fact that uh, labor supply is increasing is actually a big driver. Um, we'll discuss the subject of migration a bit later, but for now just take you know, these as, okay, there has been a, a high uh, increase in the, in the number of potential workers in the region, uh, with the biggest increase coming from the UAE and Qatar in percentage terms, and of course uh, in, in uh, number of terms, uh, Saudi Arabia had a huge increase in the number of workers as well. So, as you know, economists do when they question you know, long-run growth, one of the standard first exercises they do is a growth accounting. And uh, so we just start having a look at the composition of uh, the factors of production. You know, how did they evolve during the last 20 years? Uh, so, so we look at post-Saxon Warner. So Saxon Warner was finishing in 1990. We take the new data from 1991 to 2009. Uh, it's already data of better quality, so something we... Uh, we are happy to do with slightly better data, and we also take this 20 years horizon, um, and we first look at uh, uh, I don't know if that's where, yeah. we first look at the uh, growth of uh, real GDP per worker, so not per capita but per worker. So we have to have data on the wor on the number of workers, um, but we have that, and uh, that's the first column, delta y. Uh, so per year uh, in Bahrain, GDP per worker would have declined by 1.3%. Okay, uh, let's look at Kuwait, since we are invited by the, Luka, the Kuwait program. It's a good example, and I'm going to focus a lot on Kuwait today, but some of the stories are uh, across the region. Uh, Kuwait, or the UAE, minus 3%, minus 3.4% in terms of GDP growth per capita. This is total real GDP uh, growth per capita. So we didn't exclude the oil sector. The oil sector is there in volume. Now you may ask, why do we care about the volume of oil? Right? We care mostly about the value of oil uh, because that's you know in pure income. Uh, and we could do this exercise looking at uh, growth per capita for the non-oil sector in real terms. And we do that as well. And the numbers don't look as bad. Okay, but it's still you know more mostly negative numbers in terms of growth per capita, um, and we and, and then we try to explain this growth per uh, per worker uh, as a function of the stock of capital per worker and uh, the stock of human capital per worker, and whatever is remaining is uh, TFP growth, right, from the kind of standard solar residual exercise. 
Uh, and what we find is that uh, capital intensity actually declined in, four co- in three countries in the region. That's a bit surprising because we have in mind countries where uh, uh, the uh, stock of capital has been really exploding, right? I mean, if you think about UAE, you think about you know, new towers in Dubai, you think about uh, uh, new investment projects for uh, you know, racing tracks in Abu Dhabi or universities in Abu Dhabi, the huge increases in the stock of capital in these countries. But we just said earlier, huge increases in the stock of workers, in the number of workers coming as well. And it's the ratio that really matters. And actually we find a declining share of capital intensity. Um, when we look at educational uh, uh, variables like uh, the number of years of schooling and we apply the standard formula- formulation uh, coming from uh, Caselli's work on, uh, on, uh, in the handbooks of economic growth, we actually you know, find that educational outcomes uh, would have, uh, you know, should have increased productivity per worker. So that's the third column, the delta H. Okay? Um, these, of course, taking num- year data on uh, numbers of years of education, which actually have increased in these 20 years by about one year. So uh, the number, you know, each, each worker has one year more of education now than you would have had in, uh, in 1990 on average. So this would have contributed to this growth. Um, but we don't really know the quality of this education, and people who work on this topic are really worried about, uh, you know, what does that mean to just have one year more of education? It's really about the content. Uh, and the residuals, these TFP that are negative, are uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, in the standard literature explained as being some kind of efficiency of the use of these factors of production. And if they are negative, we're worried about it. Um, um, let's... Uh, just discuss some serious caveats to this exercise. It is a very simple exercise. The first one for some of you who are interested in, in looking at macroeconomic data is to realize that most of these countries don't have good national accounts data, especially for the deflators. So the price of investment goods is actually not a time series that we have for all these countries. We took the series for Kuwait, which had uh, quite a good series going back to 1970. Of course, we start, we're constructing a stock of capital today, or in 1990, we have to have a series of investment over a long horizon with its price, and this price has been variating quite a lot. So there is an issue with the, with the data of the price of investment goods, that's one caveat. There are more uh, standard you know, issues as well that come up with other countries, which is you know, what is it, capital? Uh, you know, I just mentioned uh, a racing track in Abu Dhabi, a tower in Dubai. What are these uh, capital, the aggregation issues in, uh, in, this, uh, in the, you know, summing all these things? And, and we know that they create uh, strange properties, and that's the work of Casali again. Uh, types of capital also. Uh, not all capitals are equally suitable or complementary with labor. Um, so, you know, it's, it's creating some issues. Uh, I was mentioning the, the weight given to schooling, which was quite positive, but, you know, it's really a matter of, of the quality of education as well, and not just a number of years. Um, so, uh, and, and again, the data on non-LGDP, uh, which gives different outcomes. Um, when, when, we, when we discuss these results, okay, you know, one question would be, why do we care about TFP? Again, these countries are doing very, very well, uh, in which we saw that at the beginning. Uh, the income per capita are very high, and as they produce more oil and as the price of oil increase, they're doing very well. Why do we care about uh, total factor productivity? There are kind of three standard, uh, two standard reasons that are given, and the third one, I think, is, is not standard, but I find more interesting. The first one is to say that these countries have to be able to live without oil. 
So in 50, 60 years, six years time, when there is no oil in the country anymore, you know, they'll have to be on their own and they'll have to have a productive, efficient of resources. I find it a different uh, sell to uh, government officials to tell them, look, you have to think about what's going to happen in 70 years. Uh, here is just the depletion rates for oil and gas, gas reserves in the country. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, Qatar have you know, 70 years in front of them without having to worry about not having oil revenues. Um, so you know, TFP is kind of an abstract concept in this kind of situations. Um, so why do we need that? Why do we need to worry about that? Uh, so one, this answer, okay, maybe you know these countries want to diversify to have a non-oil sector that is productive. But you know, if there are anywhere rich with oil money, why why is it so important? I think there is a second reason, uh, which is uh, used sometimes, is uh, is about the efficiency of government money. But at the end, a lot of this oil money is government money. You want the government to run things efficiently. So if TFP is negative, it's probably an indicator that this spending is not being very uh, you know. Uh, well used. I think a third reason which is quite important is that not everybody benefits from the oil money. Okay, 60-70% of the population in some of these countries are, uh, are foreigners. They are not nationals from the Gulf countries. They don't work in sectors clo closely related to the oil business. Uh, they don't benefit from the rent that the government gives uh, via high wages or subsidies and uh, you know, uh, mortgages or uh, subsidies in education. So it's important for the ones who are not benefiting from the oil rent directly to actually, uh, since they are going to be paid their marginal product of labor, uh, to actually uh, benefit from a productive economy. Uh, and therefore, the, you know, the lack of uh, TFP growth is important. Okay. Um, when we look at this growth literature and uh, try to explain why uh, growth has been disappointing, so we do this TFP exercise and this growth accounting, but it seems to be also quite uh, useful to look at the uh, growth literature on the institutions, uh, you know, these uh, you know, hundreds of papers discussing the impact of democracy, or of uh, you know, volatility of growth, of terms of trade, of trade openness, of uh, the size of the government, of uh, beta convergence, the fact that countries that are poor converge to higher income countries. Uh, all this literature has had you know, quite a lot of results, and it would seem a shame not to uh, take into account this literature. So what we did here was to do a very simple exercise and look at uh, what we could call a, a meta-analysis on these different uh, type of topics or what is the consensus of the academic literature uh, of the effect of, let's say, uh, terms of trade volatility um, uh, on, uh, on long-term growth. Um, so we have done this exercise with uh, uh, seven variables that we think are the most important one in terms of uh, of, uh, of growth uh, of growth outcomes. Uh, so uh, Salai Martin and others have been looking at you know which which variables are the more important one. And uh, here uh, we took seven of them for uh, the Gulf countries and for other oil producers, and we found that really the potential uh, uh, causes for low growth would come from high growth volatility. And that's very much linked to the resource cost literature, and in particular, uh, Vanderplug has been emphasizing uh, uh, the importance of volatility for the resource curse. Um, uh, maybe also quality of institutions. Okay, uh, here we use one proxy, which is I think the corruption index from the ICRG. That's the red, uh, the red component in the charts, um, and. Uh, um, and the green chart, uh, the green bar, which is uh, government consumption, the fact that governments are pretty large. So, if you look at this growth literature overall, as you know, big picture, you get that these are the three potential factors in the uh, Gulf states for why you know growth would have been possibly uh, disappointing.
Um, so whether the, re- the, the region suffers from the resource curse or not, I think that you know that's that's kind of a, a matter of a vocabulary. You know, TFP has been low, growth per capita has been low, but they have pretty high incomes per capita. So it's I wouldn't call it a resource curse. Nonetheless, it's important to understand why this growth has been slow, uh, and uh, and in, in particular TFP, since you know that's the part that is unexplained, and uh, and and the rest of the uh, the presentation will focus on on three main uh, sections, which is the Dutch D's explanation of, uh, the, of, of the resource curse, uh, the rent-seeking or government efficiency issues with, uh, with big and rich governments, and, uh, and the volatility of microeconomic policy. Uh, you know, whether fiscal and monetary policies have been able to uh, lean against the wind and actually uh, contribute to a more stable microeconomic environment. So let's look at the, at the Dutch disease. Um, so the Dutch disease, just as a quick uh, recap, uh, is the idea that uh, uh, when you have revenue windfalls, uh, they, you know, in the case of these countries, it's oil, but you could think about copper or foreign aid or any kind of external revenues. Um, these will tend to increase the demand for domestic goods and services, and these goods are not tradable. You cannot just use the foreign money to buy to import them, and therefore you're going to increase the price level in the non-tradable economy, and that's an appreciation of the exchange rate. Uh, this exchange rate uh, appreciates. It's a real exchange rate, so it's not. A, it's not. It doesn't depend on the exchange regime. The real exchange rate uh, appreciation would reduce competitiveness uh, and uh, potentially uh, the production of uh, non-oil exports. And in the literature, the idea is that this is harmful to growth, either because its primary uh, exports suffer from a secular you know, uh, a reduction in their prices, or because uh, these are actually the kind of goods, the manufacturing goods, that you would really want to produce to, to have uh, endogenous growth, like uh, capacity developments and innovation that are adaptation. Um, so when we look at the actual real exchange rate of some of these countries, we find, yes, sure, they did have a fairly big appreciation of the real exchange rate. This came through, actually, price increases, uh, inflation, because they, they mostly have a fixed exchange rate. So they, they have maintained a certain parity with the U.S. dollar. Um, it's not true for all the countries. Saudi Arabia had a, a depreciation of the real exchange rate over the long, over the long run. Okay. Um, when we look at data on exports, and in particular the share of non-oil exports and total exports, uh, we find a bit of heterogeneity here. Some countries have been able to diversify, like the UAE, uh, exporting a lot of services. Uh, some of the countries uh, have developed so much their energy sector, like Qatar, that there is no way they would uh, you know, diversify in the sense of the ratio of non-oil exports to oil export increasing. But that doesn't mean necessarily uh, much. Um, so what, what we look at is, is more of a theory and empirical model about the, the, the impact of oil windfalls on the real exchange rate. Uh, so it's basically a model of Dutch disease, a uh, standard model, uh, but these models can be amended in different ways. For instance, uh, Adam and Beaven have been changing the model by looking at the role of uh, public investment. In this chapter, we actually focus on, uh, on labor uh, and the role of foreign workers. Uh, the reason is that foreign workers are actually a big part of uh, uh, the uh, population, uh, going from 20% in Oman to se- more than 70% in, uh, in the UAE. Uh, Kuwait is also quite high, 60%. And these foreign workers, they come from a fairly uh, elastic, they, they have a fairly elastic labor supply, right? So they come from Sri Lanka, India, you know, uh, Asia, a lot of countries in Asia, as well as historically the uh, neighboring uh, countries. 
in the, of, of the Gulf. Um, and, uh, and as a result, these foreign workers uh, are going to come when the oil windfalls come because the government spent the money, wants to have infrastructure projects, and bring in foreign workers. Uh, you see that it starts creating a, some kind of movement correlation between uh, the you know, influx of oil revenues and the influx of migrants. These migrants have two effects. Uh, on one hand, they are going to increase uh, they are going to increase uh, demand for uh, local services for non tradables on the other hand, they increase the supply side of non tradables and so the question is you know how is that going to play? We can write down that formally as a little model of Dutch disease with migrants where we write down an expenditure function which is a function of the real exchange rate q. Uh, and uh, expenditure has to be equal to income plus all rent. Uh, and so we have the uh, income, which is a function of the real exchange rate and the labor supply, and the all rent N. And uh, the addition to the standard model is to have the uh, level of the labor supply, L, being a function of migrants, M, who are themselves a function of the all revenues because they are attracted by the all revenues or because the government, when they have, you know, spend the money, actually uh, you know, increase the number of visas and, and receive them to work. Okay, it's fairly straightforward to differentiate this equation and get a little result on uh, this demand side and this supply side I was talking about of the effect of all revenues. Um, so here I have the differentiation, so the effect of uh, all revenues n dn uh, on the real exchange rate dq. Okay, and an increase in uh, q is an appreciation of the real exchange rate here. And uh, uh, what we find is that the, uh, there is a positive demand side effect, which is a standard effect we were discussing about uh, Dutch disease. That is, you know, the higher the share of non-tradables in total expenditure and the higher the elasticity of demand for non-tradables to income, the stronger will be the effect of the oil rent on uh, the real exchange rates. That's kind of the first term, eta times lambda. Uh, on top of that, migrants come and they consume domestically, and the higher they wage uh, GM and the higher uh, you know, the elasticity of uh, the number of migrants to the oil inflow, the more there will be an increase in the in demand side effect. But on the supply side, uh, it goes the other way around. Uh, workers actually contribute to the productivity of the economy, and um, the higher the inflow, the higher the effect of migrant workers on uh, local services and non-tradable supply the epsilon uh, variable, and the higher the productivity GQ over M, the lower uh, the effect on the real exchange rate. Okay, so that's kind of the parameters you would get from this exercise. And at the end, the question is more or less an empirical one, what's going to happen, right, on the, uh, on the effect of uh, migrant workers and all revenues on the uh, real exchange rate. So uh, uh, a panel model of the you know, uh, real exchange rate uh, on, uh, for the region allow, you know, allows us to estimate this. Now, the advantage, you know, why, why, why is it useful to, uh, to do panel? Well, something I haven't discussed much is the availability of, of microeconomic data in the region. We only really have 20 years of data of decent quality in the region. Before 1990, you know, there wasn't much. To be honest, if you look at countries like the UAE, even very recently, they didn't have a, a well-functioning statistical agency uh, for, for, the, for the entire Emirate. It's a federation. Uh, for, uh, for every single Emirate, they have their own statistical agencies. They don't necessarily coordinate, etc. So getting good data on inflation is a problem. Even so, at one point we were uh, we were in uh, in, the, in the country in the UAE, and deflators between uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi were uh, not correlated. 
So if you look at the inflation of the subsectors, there was no. It looked like uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi had no relationship to each other. So it's you know there were issue with uh, the construction of deflators even. It's getting better because the governments are realizing the importance of, of this data. So, so, but if we have only 20 years of good data, it's going to be very difficult to go to an exercise country by country. And in some cases, like in this exercise, it makes sense to put them as a panel. Okay. So the idea that the panel will have enough homogeneity across the six countries to be able to tell a story, uh, and that will help with the, the degrees of freedom. And when we do this exercise of assessing the effect of oil revenues and migrant workers on the real exchange rate, we actually find that oil revenues did not have a significant uh, effect on, uh, on the real exchange rate. Um, however, uh, the uh, wage of the, uh, of the workers, the migrant workers, which is here proxied by their remittances, we don't really have the data, has actually a depreciating effect on the real exchange rate. So it's in line with theory. That can be both a direct effect or indirect effect. Uh, the direct effect is simply that the remittances are really money that goes outside of the country and therefore alleviates uh, the uh, oil inflow. That's, that would be the direct effect. And that can be the indirect effect that more generally remittances are a proxy for the uh, uh, wage bill of foreign workers in the economy. We don't have this data, which would be the ideal data. So that, that's basically the, the idea of this panel. Okay. So overall, we find a, a relatively positive picture uh, for the country uh, that you know the uh, real exchange rate is not going to be uh, one of the main issue in terms of the long run growth, and that's specifically because of their uh, of their uh, labor policies. Okay, so it would change if there are big change in the uh, in the uh, setup of uh, of foreign workers, which is something that is always discussed in the region for political reasons, uh, you know, we would expect this behavior to change. And then we would be more worried about the uh, Dutch disease story. So how efficient is government spending in the region? The second theme in the resource curse is about government efficiency and the fact that all money is well spent. Um, when we look at data and we look at what, kind of, what these, these Gulf countries spend, we get a bit worried, okay, because they look quite different from what you know, uh, standard OECD governments do. Um, so I'll give, give the example of Kuwait here. 21% of their budget is spent on the economic affairs outlet. That means you know, support to businesses, etc. Okay? On top of that, you have $16 billion spent on subsidies to energy, electricity, food, water. Okay? That amounts to about 32% of government spending. And that's at offside of the balance sheet for most cases, outside of the you know, uh, statements uh, of the government, because these are implicit costs, right? Uh, subsidies. Uh, so you just sell the oil below the price of, uh, of uh, the international price. So you know, we can almost sum these numbers and find like 50% of government revenues get you know, uh, spent in, uh, in support, either via business support or uh, subsidies. Quite big numbers. And uh, uh, on top of that, it's not clear that subsidies are you know, there because of an obvious economic reason. Like, uh, you know, we know that we have to subsidize education because you know, we, yeah, you know, it's uh, profitable uh, you know, from a long-term perspective and people tend to invest in education and stuff like that. Now, here they spend, you know, the reason why these countries spend a lot on subsidies is because they are very all-rich and so they can afford it. But that's kind of on the right-hand side of the budget constraint. You say you have a lot of money, therefore do anything with your left-hand side. That doesn't make much sense. You know, what matters is you know, your opportunity cost. What 
can you do with this money? Uh, so there is a very uh, strong relationship in uh, uh, in the uh, in the oil producers between the size of the oil sector and the amount of subsidies uh, uh, spent, uh, you know, by the government. On top of that, there is also a very strong correlation between the uh, uh, share of uh, uh, of investment in the economy and uh, the um, and the revenues of the government. So a lot of the investment, 40-50%, is actually done by the government. Uh, we don't have necessarily very good data on the deterioration between public and private investment for the whole uh, world. So what we look is total investment, and uh, we relate that to the size of the oil sector, and we find a very striking correlation for all producers. Uh, between the uh, size of the oil revenues and uh, and the share of investment over GDP, which again suggests that these countries are uh, investing because they can afford it, uh, not necessarily because of the returns. And that's worrying because the literature has been quite pessimistic about the role of public investment for long-term growth. Okay. <clears throat> if we were thinking in general terms about, you know, okay, a country that is very rich and wants to distribute money to its citizens, okay, or to uh, the you know residents, uh, and you know investment can be also thought as a public investment can also be thought in general terms as a as a way to distribute money, okay. The theory, that standard static theory we have about that is is uh, the optimal taxation theory, right, from public finance, because we just have to inverse the standard arguments about uh, optimal taxation. We can reverse them and say we have optimal subsidies. We have a government that is very rich, wants to distribute money. What is the optimal way to do it? One way would be to just, uh, you know, have uh, checks to everybody uh, with a fixed amount, and that would be a lump sum subsidy, a lump sum transfer, and uh, and that would be optimal. Okay, but if we think that the government doesn't want to do it because it's, you know, maybe too politically transparent, maybe uh, you know there are some reasons they actually want to have industrial policy, they want to have, uh, you know, some effect on uh, some markets. Then okay, there is, you know, let's start with the baseline model, which is uh, the optimal taxation, and just flip the sign and talk about optimal subsidies. And uh, you know you you will have seen these graphs about uh, you know in, in public finance uh, theory. Uh, you would normally want uh, in subsidies the same way you would want in taxation. You would want to subsidize uh, the commodities that are uh, uh, least elastic. Okay, because the welfare loss, which is uh, triangle uh, in gray, in dark gray, are smaller for inelastic commodities than they are for elastic commodities. So the welfare loss uh, is exactly uh, similar to the welfare loss you would have with the taxation. That gives some uh, uh, ideas about you know, giving some policy advice, uh, because a lot of these countries actually are thinking about uh, their subsidies uh, strategy. Um, so first outcome of this theory, goods with a low demand price elasticity should be subsidized at higher rates. Okay, that means food, health services, uh, certainly not energy. Okay, energy has typically a very high uh, demand elasticity uh, to price, around minus one for the region, for what I've seen in the empirical literature. And of course, I just said that subsidies are a very big part of the uh, energy is a very big part of the subsidies. Um, so that's kind of a first result. A second result would be, well, if you're thinking about desubsidizing your economy, which some of these countries are thinking about, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Qatar's industries, which takes uh, feedstock from uh, Qatar Petroleum, actually the price at which the oil is sold from Qatar Petroleum to Qatar industries has been increasing uh, in, in the last years because the government wants to force Qatar's industries to actually you know, uh, behave a bit like a competitive uh, company and, and pay the real uh, cost for, uh, for its energy. 
Um, so these kind of uh, exercises are fine, but the theory tell you you actually want you care about relative prices, not about individual uh, subsidization rates. And so really you should think about moving subsidies in parallel for you know a lot of different uh, components. So if you are starting to uh, desubsidize oil, you also should desubsidize gas. Maybe you should desubsidize electricity. Uh, maybe you should desubsidize uh, you know uh, other utilities, for instance. Okay. So we get a couple of normative results. <clears throat> that was a static story, but there is also a dynamic story, uh, which I want to talk about, which is a lot of these inefficiencies are really dynamic, uh, really. Uh, when the government has, uh, you know, uh, subsidies are so large, uh, it can create long queues, people waiting for actually getting these uh, expected uh, government benefits. So I'll give two examples here. One is a real estate development fund in Saudi Arabia uh, that is actually extending interest-free loans to Saudi citizens uh, for mortgages. So that's, you know, we're talking about huge subsidies. Uh, the balance sheet of this real estate development fund is, uh, you know, uh, almost 100% of GDP or something like that. Uh, and the government, of course, cannot uh, you know, match the demand. So there is a, there is a quantity constraint here, and uh, that's creating long queues. So you get in, you know, in the press reports about people waiting 10 years for getting a mortgage at zero interest rate from the government, as opposed to going to the private sector. And that's a huge crowding out of the private sector activities. And you can create a similar queue system with, uh, with education, for instance. And uh, a famous example is, is Egypt uh, with college graduates who were entitled to government job. And there was these long queues about people waiting. And at the end, Egypt had to, had to remove uh, this kind of scheme. Um, and so, you know, these dynamic efficiencies are quite important. Uh, probably, I, I find they are more significant than the static ones I was just talking about. Um, um, we actually can, you know, do a little exercise. I think that uh, is, is relevant for... Um, for the Gulf, because, uh, for instance, as uh, you know, we have, with the Arab Spring, some of these countries have been increasing public service wages. Okay, and I want to show how this thing is is worsening uh, the outcome of the labor market. Uh, so, if you can write a little model of queuing for public services, where, where workers can either take a private service job or wait for, you know, finally getting a public service jobs. And we are assuming that they wouldn't move back from a public service job to a private service job later on. And they wouldn't be able to move, you know, if they accept a private service job, they kind of lose their position in the queue and they wouldn't get the public service jobs. If you kind of make this simple assumptions, in, you know, in dynamic model, you can actually show the conditions under which uh, an increase in public employment crowd out private employment by more than one, which means that the overall effect on employment is negative. So as the government hires public workers, what's happening is that it's creating a higher probability of getting a public service job and uh, uh, you know, higher uh, uh, valuation of, of queuing, and therefore people are even less willing to take a private sector job. So uh, this kind of situation would happen if the public service wage is about 50% higher than the private sector wage, which actually happens in the region quite a lot. Uh, so you know, public employment policies will have a big effect on the private sector uh, participation uh, rate. And again, I, th I find these kind of things, uh, you know, the dynamic inefficiency is quite uh, uh, costly. Um, okay, so now I'm just going to move to uh, the second part of, uh, of the presentation, the second part of the book, which is specifically about stabilization policies. Um, GDP volatility is very high in uh, oil exporting countries. That's the second to last uh, bar here. Um, and uh, typically much higher than OECD countries and even higher than other developing countries. 
This is especially true in the Gulf region, probably because they are just more extreme versions of the typical oil exporter, and Kuwait GDP volatility is uh, very high, tremendous, for instance, uh, even uh, after the Kuwait uh, crisis, uh, war, the Gulf War. Um, you know, these, you know, in the literature on uh, uh, growth and volatility or in the literature on the resource curse is often being you know, uh, highlighted as one of the main factors of the, growth perform- of the pro-growth performance of the exporters. Uh, so it's, it's a key element to understand uh, how this volatility is coming about and uh, what kind of fiscal and monetary policy can do. Um, there is some literature on pro-cyclical fiscal policy in emerging markets. That's, uh, for instance, uh, Ethan Lisletsky with the LSE has done a paper on that. Um, and uh, uh, you know, we, we are going to go on, on, this, uh, on this line. Um, the second uh, branch of uh, policy is monetary policy. And here we'll have to discuss about the role of the fixed exchange rate regime in the region. Let's start with fiscal policy first. These are countries uh, that have an exogenous interest rate. Um, and uh, uh, normally, if they're a closed economy, the, the Keynesian multiplier would be quite high. So the role of the impact of fiscal policy on short-term growth would be quite strong. At the same time, they are uh, very open economies with large imports, remittances, which could you know, reduce the size of the multiplier. Uh, so it's you know, not very clear which way it goes compared to a standard multiplier, which... Uh, for countries with an adjustable interest rate is around 0.5. For countries with a non-adjustable interest rate might be closer to 1. Um, so there are issues when estimating uh, fiscal multipliers, uh, mostly endogeneity, the fact that uh, you know, the government has automatic response of spending to growth, uh, either because of automatic stabilizers, so really an automatic effect, or because fiscal policies are trying to be countercyclical. Um, and uh, the literature has kind of two main ways to deal with endogeneity issue. The first solution is to try to, to identify exogenous increase in, in spending, in government spending, something that is not related to the business cycle. Uh, okay, so there is rumor and rumor in the U.S. doing a lot of that. Um, here we know we don't have this kind of detailed information on how the budgeting is being done, and it's kind of a complicated exercise. But we have a specific case of a good instrument in Saudi Arabia. The lunar history calendar, um, which uh, is used to pay uh, public servants, is actually not the Gregorian calendar on which the private sector is being paid. And actually the public servants earn a 13 months every two or three years. So this can be used as an instrument. Uh, it's really an exogenous increase in public spending that you can see in the data. Um, and uh, uh, there are two uh, drawbacks uh, of using this instrument. The first one is that the degrees of freedom are quite limited because it's 20 years of data, 25 years of data, and we know IV is biased uh, in this kind of setting. And also the increases are fully anticipated, which actually should you know, uh, mean uh, it's going to mean an underestimate of the fiscal multiplier. But it's worth doing because the effect is quite striking. In uh, shaded areas, you see here the, uh, uh, the years in which the Gregorian uh, calendar adjusted to the history lunar calendar, and uh, uh, that's the gray uh, shaded areas. And the wage bill of the government are this, uh, is a gray line, which really spikes every single time. So there is no doubt about that. The wage bill is increasing quite massively in these years by you know, uh, about uh, 15% uh, every, uh, every two or three years. And you can see how GDP growth, the black line, actually does have these little bumps that kind of follow these things. And when you do that, you find the, the IV instrument that tells you the estimated prior for Saudi Arabia is around 0.4.
Okay, so it kind of gives us a little idea of what the base, you know, the, the broad area which we're expecting this first come to player to be on. Uh, the second solution, which is again standard in the literature, is to use actually a VER and to try, you know, under some assumptions such as fiscal policy is not contemporaneously reactive to the uh, to GDP um, uh, because maybe you know policymakers don't have high frequency data. Uh, then the standard, you know, VER uh, procedures can be used to estimate uh, fiscal multipliers. On top of that, we're going to be able to talk about pro-cyclicality and contra-cyclicality of fiscal policy, and we're going to be able to decompose the growth cycle of these countries. We find multipliers of the range, fiscal multipliers of the range of 0.4 to 0.7 uh, for different uh, countries for different years. Uh, so it's you know a significant impact uh, of, uh, of fiscal policy in these countries, despite the trade openness. Fiscal policy is mostly uh, pro-cyclical in the region. Okay, so you see Kuwait, uh, you know, these are the impulse response, the effect of a, a shock to GDP on fiscal policy. And these are quite procyclical uh, responses. And that's coming really from the fact that the governments don't have medium-term frameworks for their budget planning or are not really using them, uh, you know, and also from the effect of oil revenues. One exception that the oil revenues that accrue to the government and at the same time stimulate uh, the economy. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a bit of an exception, and uh, here we have uh, you know, uh, faith on this result because actually they have been always mentioning the fact that they were doing counter-cyclical policy. And a big example where in the 2000 years when the price of oil was very, very low, the central bank really decumulated reserves for the government to spend. So actually it makes sense. Um, but fiscal policy is pro-cyclical, which is again quite typical of emerging markets and especially of uh, oil producers. Um, you know, this VR allows us to decompose the growth cycle in Kuwait. Uh, of course, we have uh, you know, the first Gulf War, which uh, is this uh, a huge uh, collapse in GDP and, and, and bump uh, right after. Um, but we use uh, dummies to, uh, to control for that. And we get an idea of you know, the contribution of the different uh, type of shocks uh, to GDP growth. And we find that uh, government expenditure shocks are actually a big, a big component. Again, remember, this is a pro-cyclical fiscal policy with a fairly big multiplier and has been contributing to uh, big growth uh, outcomes in 2004, 2004 you know, the period of overheating for the Gulf region. Also, you know, it has contributed to the smallest growth in the 1998-2000 years when the price of oil was very, uh, was, uh, was very, uh, was very low. And uh, again, fiscal spending was actually contractionary in 2010-2011 when actually you would have wanted to be more stimulative. Okay. Okay, so we've talked about fiscal policy, and I'm just going to uh, conclude on monetary policy. Uh, these are countries with a fixed exchange rate. Okay, Kuwait is a bit of an exception. It has a basket, and the basket uh, is not, uh, I think, is uh, not public, but it's you know, a component of the U.S. dollar and the euro. Uh, you can guess it by, by looking at the, at the data. Um, so mostly these are countries with a, with a fixed exchange rate, um, and uh, they are interesting to study on their own, but also uh, because they are kind of specific cases uh, 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 compared to advanced economies, they're actually quite common for emerging markets and, uh, and uh, less developed countries. 
So they have a fixed exchange rate regime. The central banks do not target uh, an inflation rate, okay, obviously. Uh, and as a result, central banks try to operate on quantities, uh, sterilization of uh, foreign capital flows, but also attempts at affecting interest rates uh, and the supply of credit even within uh, uh, the fixed exchange rate uh, framework, which is kind of surprising, but actually they, they, they are having some you know, uh, policy space there. When we want to assess the fixed exchange rate regime, there is two ways to think about it. One way is to say, well, the price level overall has been quite stable, and that therefore it has been quite successful as a, as a monetary policy regime. I find it a bit strange an argument because yes, it's a monetary anchor, but you know, saying that there is no hyperinflation, you know, is uh, not such a huge success. A lot of countries don't have hyperinflation. Now that we know a bit more about uh, you know how to control uh, monetary uh, aggregates, we shouldn't be surprised about that. What I worry more is like this big volatility in the inflation rates. Okay, and if you think about the standard macro models, this is actually more costly than anticipated uh, price increases. Right? So we worry more about unanticipated uh, change in the price level than about anticipated uh, change in the price level. And the volatility of inflation is actually more, potentially more costly than uh, you know, a trend of 6-7% inflation constantly across many years. Um, uh, so I wouldn't say that the, uh, that's my personal view, again, not the view of uh, neither my co-authors or, uh, or uh, my colleagues at the fund, that I wouldn't say that the exchange regime has been very successful in terms of stabilizing uh, uh, inflation. You can see here the fairly high volatilities. Okay? Um, now, the question is, okay, the alternative which is moving to a flexible exchange regime, is that a good alternative for these countries? And one classical argument is to say, well, you know, the banking system is not competitive enough, not developed enough, that the transmission uh, mechanism of monetary policy is actually relatively weak. So I show here in this, uh, or um, in the, in the, I don't know what kind of color is it, <laughs> in this brown line, you have the, uh, uh, the three-month interbank rate, which is the one that the central bank is most likely going to be able to uh, affect via quantity operations or even by uh, interest rate setting if they were doing that. Uh, and then you have the lending rate and deposit rates uh, shown in, in different colors. And yes, there is a broad movement and you can find some co-integration and stuff like that. But overall, you know, you don't have a, a strong transmission mechanism. Uh, and that's true for Korea, that's true for the rest of the, of the region. Uh, so... Um, so therefore, you know, you know, having your own uh, inflation targeting regime with uh, setting up interest rate would not necessarily be a very efficient thing. On top of that, central bankers are actually quite happy that they do have some leeway in affecting interest rates, even in the fixed exchange rate regime. Okay, and that's obviously because uh, assets are, you know, uh, different. I mean, as, a, as an international macroeconomist, you think interest rates are exactly equal if you have a exactly you know, if you have a fixed rate regime. But in fact, you know, it's about you know the type of asset that you have, and uh, if there are imperfect substitutes, there is no reason for this strict equality to hold. Um, uh, a good example was you know the global financial crisis, in which suddenly you know U.S. assets and uh, emerging market assets, even with a fixed exchange regime, you know, were not considered to be identical. Um, and, uh, and you can see these uh, bigger gaps in the, uh, in the spread between the uh, U.S. dollar uh, LIBOR rate and the, and the interbank rate in Kuwait. Okay. So um, it's useful, you know, when you want to discuss uh, the effectiveness of monetary policy to attempt uh, to estimate a monetary VR. What is done in most advanced countries is, okay, let's put the data together, let's identify monetary shock, and let's get the impulse response. Okay? And it's just a very, very difficult exercise in the region. 
so we did it, uh, and uh, you know we get some uh, reasonable results, but it's very difficult. The first reason that monetary VRs, the identification strategies, are normally uh, you know uh, predicated on uh, high frequency data. Uh, the assumption that you know ideally you want monthly data, maybe quarterly data, because you really want to say that the central bank is just waking up and doing something, a shock to uh, in the interest rate, not anticipating or not taking into account current events to uh, you know uh, counterreact. Because if you do that, you will you will underestimate the effect of monetary policy. Um, and we don't have this high-frequency data in the region. Okay? At the same time, policymakers don't have it either. Okay, so it's you know uh, the econometrician here is not you know uh, less data than the, than the policymaker, so it's possible that the monetary policy uh, you know is not very reactive, and therefore that the VR identification strategy actually works. Okay, uh, of course you have a fixed exchange regime, which means that you actually also want to control for the U.S. monetary policy. Okay, um, so what we do is to extend the kind of two-country VR model uh, done in, uh, by Minya and Rogers and the GMCB, um, and uh, because it's two-country. Uh, you know, panel VR, we're going to be able to, dis to disentangle the monetary shock from the US from the monetary shocks from the Gulf region. And we pull this as a panel again because of the uh, issue of degrees of freedom. So we have 168 observations. And uh, what we find um, is that uh, uh, tightening of US monetary policy, the Fed fund rates, has actually a significant inf impact on inflation in the Gulf. That goes you know, uh, directly, uh, that's the impulse response, but also indirectly via commodity prices, global growth, etc. When we look specifically at the Gulf, you know, we actually don't find an effect of monetary policy in the Gulf on uh, output growth. So it's not significant here, this uh, impulse response. So monetary policy is not very effective uh, in terms of uh, affecting growth. We do find an impact uh, of monetary aggregates on prices, but that's really the quantity theory of money. I mean, uh, you know, we just said earlier that the you know, short-term uh, inflation uh, you know, volatility was uh, quite harmful, and actually that's exactly the horizon over which there is very little effect on monetary policy. So when you look at uh, a couple of uh, quarters, you actually don't get, uh, or even, uh, even uh, up to eight quarters, so two years, you don't get an effect of monetary policy on inflation in the Gulf. You just get it uh, over the long run, which is not surprising, but also not very policy-relevant. Okay. So I just want to conclude uh, on the on the presentation um, to say that uh, you know the, the big findings are that uh, the growth performance in in real terms and after filtering for the capital accumulation and the you know education increase of education uh, and, uh, and the increase in the labor supply is actually a bit a bit disappointing in, in you know so this TFP has been declining. Uh, the Dutch disease might not be the main issue because actually the, rate, the real exchange rates have not appreciated that much, or at least not across, you know, across all countries in the same way. And one possible explanation is that the labor market is quite different from what you would have in a standard uh, Dutch disease model. Um, so other potential explanations for this low performance would be that the uh, public sector has been uh, is very very large and uh, you know doesn't uh, you know have good incentives to spend money efficiently. On top of that, it creates rent seeking, uh, which uh, and other kind of behavior that will affect the you know uh, the private sector. And I was giving the example of the you know uh, mortgage uh, market, for instance, in Saudi Arabia. Um, 
And uh, you know, other explanation for poor long-term growth might be that uh, growth and fiscal spending volatility is very, very high. And you know, that has been one of the factors uh, typically uh, you know, using the literature to explain poor uh, performance of uh, resource-rich countries. So fiscal policy has not been very helpful. It has, it has tend to be procyclical, and monetary policy is not really affecting growth. It can affect, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's being good at anchoring uh, long-term, you know, inflation, uh, not so much about affecting short-term growth or about stabilizing uh, uh, inflation in the short run. Thank you very much, Thank you very much for the invitation.